One of the things that I love to ask when I've got a panel of farmers and they're doing great things is, you know, do you have any regrets or anything you wish you knew before you started out on this? And everyone always gives exactly the same answer. And that is, I wish I did a benchmarking of a carb order benchmark. And it's because actually they realise that there's a huge amount of carbon already and they've got their profitability, they can measure that. But what we haven't done is that first benchmarking of the carbon to really capture all the true reductions. And they sort of feel excited about what it would have been. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. G'day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Natalie Collard, the newly appointed CEO of Farmers for Climate Action. Farmers for Climate Action is the fastest growing farmer representative organisation in Australia, with 8,000 farm members and a non-farming supporter base of over 45,000 people. Natalie has an extraordinary background as an advocate for rural Australia, agriculture, renewable energy, innovation and women's leadership. But what truly sets her apart is her dedication to driving change in the realm of climate action, particularly within the farming community. During this insightful conversation, we explore Natalie's journey and her personal connection to agriculture. She shares her insights into the role and origins of Farmers for Climate Action, a movement dedicated to championing climate policies and sustainable practices within the farming community. Natalie dives into the shifting perceptions of farmers in the media, as well as the support her organisation has garnered both within the agriculture community and beyond. She delves into the collaborative efforts with farmer representative bodies and the profound benefits of renewable energy for farmers and their communities. For those involved in animal agriculture, Natalie discusses how Farmers for Climate Action defends its environmental impact. And the conversation takes a candid turn as Natalie addresses the question of why it's not hypocritical for farmers to advocate for climate action, given its perceived role in its contributor to admissions. Breaking down the barriers with farming communities and forging political advocacy for climate action are also integral parts of this engaging discussion. We discover how Farmers for Climate Action is working to influence political leaders and support farmers who feel helpless in the face of climate change. For those eager to get involved, Natalie provides valuable insights into where to begin, highlights farmer education resources, and shares future goals for Farmers for Climate Action. Moreover, we debunk myths surrounding farmers and climate action, shedding light on the complex reality of their work. Natalie's passion and commitment are truly inspirational, and in a delightful twist, we get to know her on a personal level as she shares her interests outside of work. This episode is a must-listen for anyone looking to gain a deeper understanding of climate action within the farming industry, and how a passionate advocate like Natalie Collard is leading the way towards a sustainable and resilient future. Now over to Natalie. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. David, fantastic to be here. Thank you. Now, we were just talking off here. Now, you're the newly minted CEO of Farmers for Climate Action, so congratulations on your new job. Thanks. I'm just so excited to be in this role, working with amazing people, doing something that is, we think, the most important challenge of our time, tackling it head on. But I have to say, I'm feeling very wet behind the ears as we start, lots to learn and um, lots of impact to have. So now you're now you're on a podcast. I'm going to ask you questions, and you're thinking, "Gosh, I hope I've read everything in my induction." Oh, you know how it is, yeah. <laughs> um, so look, let's talk about. You've got a really impressive CV. Look, you've been an advocate for rural and regional Australia for a while. Um, you've done work in renewable energy innovations. Um, you've done quite a bit in women's leadership in your career as well. Are you from a rural background yourself, or do you just find this affinity with agriculture throughout your career? Would you believe the drought, the millennial drought, brought me to agriculture unexpectedly? City girl, born and raised on the wrong side of the tracks in Melbourne, 
um, went to Canberra. Um, I did the Army Reserves when I was at uni and um, that led me to defence as a civilian um, and DFAT. Loved both of those so much. Um, but I was living in Canberra and we couldn't have showers, couldn't wash the car, and I thought, what can I do to help farmers? The news was telling me this was impacting farmers far worse than it was impacting me. So I knocked on the door of the Farmers Federation and I said, what can I do to help? And I thought maybe host a barbecue, fundraise, some pro bono work. And they said, would you apply for this job? I did. Would you believe I won the job? And it was manager rural affairs. And I remember telling my parents, because I'm the daughter of migrants, so the great Aussie dream was to get a secure job in the public service. And when they found out, I'd uh, kicked it in um, just as long service leave had sort of started to roll in and um, doing something that was not in their world or my world. Um, what that meant was we were sort of thrown through a loop. So dad said to me, have you ever been on a farm, Nat? And I said, no. And he said, have you ever met a farmer. And I said, I think there was one on the interview, Dad. Um, but what I learned was that farmers are just simply fantastic. They're really generous sharing their knowledge. And what I'm really good at is asking lots of questions and really open to learn. So it's something that I've stuck with and absolutely loved. So your parents didn't come from farming stock at all either? No. Dad was um, grew, up, grew up in Mauritius, mum and dad. Um, dad was involved in um, a homestead that um, had sugarcane, but they weren't directly involved in anything but the management, you know, through his grandfather. So it wasn't um, something that we felt that we came from. Oh, very good. So when you got into your first agricultural role, what was the biggest – I love the idea of, you know, those fresh eyes. I always say when someone joins our organisation, you have like these three months probably where you just see the place for what it is. Um, rather than you haven't gone native yet. And so, you know, you're, you're really just everything's new and everything's just as you see it. So when you first joined ag, what did, um, what surprised you really the first time? Well, I will say coming completely new is really overwhelming, but really exciting. And I'm always someone that's been attracted to transformational things. That felt incredibly exciting. Um, the thing for me was just the things that Ag didn't realise was completely different to the world that I came from. Like there was not a great distinction between home life and work life because we would have work meetings around kitchen tables, you know, and you'd get to know people's families and things like that. Um, so you'd have to understand who people were and where they came from which was to me really similar values that I've been raised with. You know, it's about who are you, what are you here to do in the world, and will you do it the right way? So for me that felt a really strong point of connection, but it's not something that people I was working with would probably notice. Um, the other thing for me was that I remember being just blown away that people in agriculture, to my way of thinking, had to be almost, you know, as, as skilled as veterinarians on their livestock, as skilled as lawyers on navigating, you know, regulatory regimes, as skilled as accountants to run financials and um, really polish their reputational management and communication because every single person they spoke to had an investment or skin in the game with their product because we're talking about, you know, meat, vegetables, fruits, and um, fibre as well. So I remember just feeling really blown away and slightly intimidated at the skill set that people had to have just to turn up to be a farmer, um, let alone managing staff and all the rest. Um, and they just oblivious about how impressive I found that to the point where it actually took me about six months to mention it. Right. I think someone asked me the other day, what would you say to a year 10? I was doing a podcast actually and they said, what would you say to a year 10 student? And one of the things obviously people always talk about is they don't want to get bored at work. And I said, if you never want to get bored at work, go to ag because um, it, it's like every job in one. Yeah, absolutely. And I just sort of think there's something for everybody and I really do believe it. And one of the things that 
I notice that people have a fear about ag, especially if they haven't come from it, is they think that once you go into ag, you can never get out. And what I found is it's an industry with the most transferable skills ever. So I came in and what I found as well was that I had a skill set that was needed and really valued and appreciated. And when where I came from, I was one of many. And in ag, everyone brought something different to the table and really appreciated each other for it. And I felt really listened to and valued and that I could make a big difference. Um, it never had felt more important to make sure I was doing my job to the absolute best that I could. Um, because there wasn't all these layers of bureaucracy on top of me and people were trusting me. Um, and that's something I think that um, people that really want to make a difference, you know, this was before diverse teams were um, in vogue. Um, we were using it already and being better because of it from the get-go. So that was really exciting for me. Yeah, definitely. And so... Um and you've said that because if I look at your your LinkedIn profile, you have actually had this ability to move in and out of. Um, you've had some pretty big roles in agri business, but you've been able to move in and out of ag without being. You know, I was expecting to have this solid agri business career from twenty through, which is quite normal. Uh, but you've been able to move in and out a bit. Yeah, I I feel that I'm always attracted to jobs that give me something that's in the first five news items um, in the paper or on the news. Um, and I've always been able to do that. And it's not something that I consciously set out to do. It's just that I'm really purpose-driven. I'm really passionate. I really love working, so I give give it my all. And so I want to do something that feels like I'm making a difference. And what that means, I've, you know, yeah, I've since I came into ag, um, and I grew there really quickly. I went from a manager role to a CEO, um, which people just wouldn't believe um, given I was so new to the sector. Um, but then from there, I went to telecommunications, um, clean energy. I did a whole lot of stuff with startups, which was really fun. Um, I did transport and then back to ag, but as a startup and now back to ag, a non-traditional national body like Farmers for Climate yeah, so that's a good, good, um, help me with my segue there. So farmers for climate action. So, um, for all our listeners who don't know about or haven't heard about climate, uh, farmers for climate action, um, can you give us an overview of the organization and how did it come about? And, and, and yeah, just give us the, um, the pitch, I suppose. Sure. Well, um, about eight years ago, a group of farmers um, got together in the Blue Mountains, famously, um, and some are still on our board, would you believe? And they they sort of said, we're in a world where we were talking about the millennial drought, which at the time was considered a one in a hundred year drought. Um, but since then, we've had many more droughts and flood events across Australia. We've got global warming. The science is in but not enough is being done. And we're on the front line of, A, wanting to solve that problem and investing serious dollars and time and expertise to do so. But also, we're on the front line of the impact. So we're an industry that actually is threatened first um, if we don't solve this as a country and also as a planet. Um, so they decided to come together and create what I believe is Australia's most contemporary um, farmer representational peak body. It's already become um, the second largest Australian farmer um, representative group by membership. We've got 8,000, just over 8,000 members now, but we've got a supporter network of 45,000 non-farmers that really believe in what we do and support us to do that. Um, so really what FCA is about is about these five strategic goals and it's all about what we can do to create meaningful climate action and of that climate action um, we're thinking what can we do at the national level what can we do to 
shift national legislation and the political appetite so that as a country we're all singing from the same hymn sheet and setting the same goals and targets. Um, we think it's incredibly important for Australia to get some alignment at the national level about what we're doing and why. Um, our theory of change, we call it, is that we believe if we grow the number of farmers, the representatives in our communities that are leading on climate smart farming solutions, if we're able to champion strong economy-wide climate policy, and that's where national legislative change comes in, we think that we can be working together to mitigate climate change and benefit rural communities at both ends of the spectrum. So through our own efforts and through national um, benchmarks and activities as well. Yeah, so it's interesting because um, you look in, I suppose, traditional media over the past, well, ever really, but it's changing a bit lately. But, you know, farmers are often portrayed as part of the problem rather than or apathetic in their concerns about climate change. And do you think this is a changing narrative or do you think it's a way to go? So if you talk to the the average consumer on the street, they, they don't often see climate action and farming in the same boat. Um, is, is, is that changing or um, do you think it's got a way to go? Well, I've been, as you know, around agriculture for 20 years, um, directly and indirectly, and it sort of breaks my heart that actually most people, if you if you spoke to the average person on the street, they would say to you that the first thing that they could do for climate action is actually cut whole food groups diet because they believe farmers are doing the wrong thing and they're not aware that actually um, for instance, the red meat industry has a carbon neutral by 2050 benchmark that they're making huge inroads towards. Um, there's not many sectors that are as advanced as the food industry in terms of addressing climate action. We're always looking to do better though. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a good point. So, you know, look, many of the people listening to this and our clients are in animal agriculture. That's a great point. And and they seem to be always having to defend animal agriculture uh, around the, the 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 that common um, I suppose opinion um, around animal agriculture. So, how are you helping um, farmers, and especially particularly that group of farmers, um, better either adapt or educate or all of the above to make animal agriculture part of the solution rather than this perceived part of the problem? Yeah, well, what I will say is in the first instance, even those farmers, and there's there's not a huge amount, there's plenty to become members, but there's plenty that aren't connected yet with FCA. We hope they will be. Um, but they, farmer in Australia, is working towards climate action. And under each commodity group, there are very strong um, sustainability frameworks that are robust. Um, that are working towards very serious benchmarks um, that are aligned to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As Farmers for Climate Action, we want to take that further. And we're the only agricultural group that is consistently investing in farmers. We do that in a number of ways. And part of what we're doing is supporting farmers to champion strong economy-wide climate policies but also to pursue climate smart agriculture so that they're really positioned to be resilient through the climate change that is hitting them today. Um, for instance, some of the things we do is we've uh, funded um, over 20 farmers a year to do um, a scholarship, which includes um, carbon benchmarking of their farms, um, being really strong and doing um, qualifications through the University of Melbourne and Canberra University, um, sorry, ANU, um, on becoming very up-to-date and understanding the theory and how they can apply that to their farms. We work with farmers and support them to showcase what they're doing to each other. So on our website, we've got a huge number of farms in focus where we communicate to other farmers best practice and what's working in different parts of the country. We know that farmers learn um, from other farmers really well and they really 
are a source of trusted advice for each other. So we try and strengthen those communities. Um, we commission reports. So I'm sitting with one called Farm Powered, which is talking about renewables and um, farming and how they work together, but also how there's, we can benefit, but also how we navigate challenges in, in that intersection. We also create what we call um, farmer ambassadors um, so that farmers can be trained, have up-to-date information, all the science and the facts so that they're able to communicate to their local influencers, to each other, MPs and other decision makers around what they need from a really informed perspective. Do you find there's a barrier? So. I grew up in, so I'm a bit older, so I'm in my early 50s. And uh, um, so the, the you know, when I was in my 20s and growing up, the idea of farmers being involved in climate activism was, it was, you know, it wouldn't, it was unthought of really, you, you know, you couldn't imagine it. And not that they weren't already, so land care has always been a really big part of a lot, most farmers' lives, so that, but climate activism beyond the farm gate wasn't a um, really big thing. Do you find that there's still those barriers um, within um, farming, you know, like they're, you know, they, they learn from each other, but farming groups or for farming communities to be, like you say, an influence or proactively say, no, I'm actually advocating for this, I'm supporting this, I'm pushing this, um, especially in the, you know, the I suppose what are the leader group, which is probably the plus 40 on to really be proud to say, no, I'm a farmer and I'm standing up and I'm pushing for climate activism rather than seeing it as, you know, something that hippies did in the 70s. Do you, do you, does that make, make sense? Absolutely, especially when you're talking climate. Um, the climate followed by the word activism does conjure up thoughts of antisocial behaviour or behaviour to get attention and make a point that often doesn't fit with most farmers' values about being constructive in society and part of society. Um, what we recognise is farmers, just like the other group in this country, are very diverse and hold a lot of different opinions and different preferences and ways of working. Um, there's two points that I think are really important to put forward here, and one is that farmers have never been busier <laughs> because the way that the businesses are operating because of the challenge of climate, whether it be drought after drought interspersed by floods, um, COVID, labour shortages, nearly every person in agriculture is working far more than one full-time equivalent job as one individual and has been for a very long time. So we've got a really motivated group, <coughs> but we've got the time poor um, cohort as well. So it's really important for us to make sure that we're offering a suite of measures that suit people and meet them where they're at. So for instance, if it's send us supporting you to send an email to your local MP, we are more than able to do that. If it's on farm improvements, well, we you, people will head to our website and get a Climate Smart Toolkit. Um, I was in Urawa last Thursday and we had a group of farmers at the local pub and we came to them and had a really lovely evening where we brought an expert to talk about best practice electrification on farm, how we can upgrade everything from motorbikes to um, handheld tools to microgrids and batteries on farm to EVs and had a really energising discussion around what the opportunities are for them, affordability, no question off the table, as well as things that might take um, six months or more, such as new qualifications. Um, so we're really conscious one size does not fit all. Um, the way we operate is always transparent with integrity and informed by science. So we're never going to stay away from that. We're never going to be antisocial. Um, we don't think that affects the people that we represent, um, but we're really excited to be collaborative, to be inclusive, to be respectful, and to listen and get feedback around what's working, what's not working. Um, we often get feedback that extension, a bit more extension would be desired, 
Um, we'd absolutely love to do it. Um, it requires funding, um, but we're open to exploring how when that might work in the future. And you're talking about there's this mix between, oh, I want to talk about, you know, the, the, there's obviously a political or um, uh, representative role here, but I just wanted to drill down a bit on that uh, practical stuff. So often, you know, farm farmers by necessity and by nature tend to be very much, okay, that's all great, uh, Natalie, but what can I do? Um, you know, they're very action-driven, um, So, which is great. So when it comes down to things like um, – I've interviewed a few people on carbon farming. You've obviously got electrification and then you've got the challenges around um, um, fueling large equipment like tractors and harvesters, et cetera, uh, into the future. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm a, um, a farmer and I'm thinking, okay, I've got a machinery replacement schedule over the next 10 years, how do I factor in things like carbon or, or energy transformation into my machinery replacement schedule um, when there might be a bit of uncertainty around what's coming down the um, the, the food chain in the context of, of machinery. So do you get involved in that or do you support industry in that way or do you help farmers do the research? And so how, do you get involved in that practical end of the? What we see ourselves where we can really make a difference is create and connect um, experts or people active in this space with a good track record to farmers. So, for instance, we might bring a webinar on a topic with a few different people that are trusted and we've vetted um, to give their insights and opinions and carry that discussion. Um, one of the best you do is connect farmers to other farmers. We're already doing it and trying it and, sees, and share what's for them. And, of course, that comes with also sharing all the avenues they've gone down which haven't quite paid off and why because that's just as valuable as the things that have worked. Um, I'll be spending uh, the next two days um, in YAS talking soils and regenerative agriculture with some experts in that space. I'll be listening and learning. Um, but part of what I'll be doing is keeping my ear to the ground around who might be um, interested and suitable to connect our, our group of farmers to in the future. Um, and part of our job, I think, is to curate, um, but also to recognise and be honest that actually um, it would be terrific if there was a website that said, here's all the people that do this and they're trusted. And, and we truly, like I think every other part of Australia, including government, we actually don't have the resources to vet and be sure about who we're bringing, but what we can do is make sure that we're creating the right discussions, the right questions to ask, and giving farmers enough of an insight so that when they're in their local community, they can actually connect with great suppliers, ask the right questions, and explore things that will minimise the time that they have to spend researching themselves and lead them towards um, climate smart. And always it ends up being um, more profitable solutions more quickly. Yeah, and I think though, and if you go into any district around uh, around Australia, probably around the world, they, they, they're going to most people are going to know those farmers in their district. Um, they were the first ones to adopt a lot of technology. So let's say they're on grain farming, they were the first ones to go no till, or they were the first ones to you know put in like you said regenerative or um, um, farming practices or you know, that were the first ones to have low, low, low stock handling or, you know, those sort of things. So every district has those, um, the farmers that are, are working on the edge of what's new. Uh, so is it about trying to find not only experts, industry experts, as in academic experts, um, but also those farmers in each district. So everyone knows, okay, those are the guys that always tend to be near the bleeding edge of, of, of what's possible. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually look at the supply chain. So actually talk to some of the providers as well and have them in the room because often they know the questions that farmers have been asking that haven't actually been solved yet or what's actually made a great difference. And often with new tech, new ways of patient, you get those real gold unexpected dividends that actually need to be shared as well. So actually having that whole lens is great. So talking about the supply chain, that's a really good point. So I was at a conference, I think, last year, 
and we'll, and it was talking about carbon. And one of the, one of the conversations was essentially about carbon farming, but it's how farmers approach carbon, um, secrets. I can't even say it today, but a conversation, um, and carbon capture and everything. And one of the, one of the discussions, I suppose it wasn't even a debate, but it was really just a conversation to say, do they keep those credits for themselves or do they sell them as a, Form of a long term, I suppose, rent roll or income to to other industries, and and the reason that was a question is that many people in the in the agricultural supply chains are kicking the carbon um, burden down the down the supply chain a bit. So whether that be fertilizer or chemicals or transport or whatever, and they were saying that there's a possibility that a lot of farming farmers are going to have to carry a lot of that carbon as the primary producer, the carbon burden is there is that part so do you work try and help farmers work through that or politically um have to 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 have those discussions absolutely at at both ends of the lens we we do and we we don't pretend that we've got the answer all the answers let alone one answer because we don't think there is one answer um some of the some of the things that we encourage farmers to think about is for instance um if if a free trade agreement with the EU was signed off or something that's definitely in that draft at the moment is our carbon emissions. And that means that you wouldn't ideally want to be um, having already uh, sold off your carbon uh, credits because you would want to use those to be able to get your product to market. Um, things to think about in that equation, and we've, we regularly have information available on this, and new new information through webinars and new experts. And we're not the only ones, of course, um, but the type of farming that you do. So, for instance, certain types of farmings, farming is tends to be more intense in terms of the methane that is created, carbon that's generated through that practice. And, again, understanding the inputs that you're using and whether they're coming um, with high or low carbon profiles is important as well um, and thinking about how that stacks up for you. So for instance, at the moment we think there's great advantages for farmers to be able to not have sold their, themselves out of carbon credit market too far ahead. You want to retain the, op- the option to be able to make that call, uh, I think, as, as strongly as you can. One of the things that I learnt at our own roadshow on Thursday is that did you know part of Tesla's profitability is selling their carbon credits to other auto manufacturers? Um, so it's really interesting to think about that's part of their business model. And while the carbon market is working as it is, they're doing incredibly well. So what this means for us is before we even think about selling our credits, one thing we do know um, 100% is getting to zero net carbon or as close as possible to is a no-brainer. You know, that is something you want to be doing for your own profitability and sustainability and that of our planet, as well as your own potential market access and um, profitability diversification as well. And do you think it's going to – so one of the things we talk about in, in this podcast is farm – you know, a lot of the farm business, which often comes down to everything ends up getting measured in dollars eventually. Um, and uh, I'm a farmer and I've got a big operation and um, I'm, I'm all, I'm all across. I'm happy to go. I love the idea of going to zero, zero net carbon. Um, and, but I need to put in a plan over the next decade to achieve that. Um, and how I'm going to go about that. So in other words, I've got to, I've got to build this into my financial plans and models over the next decade, at least I assume. So is there, when you're connecting experts, are there people that can um, help farmers put those plans together? So like create a, okay, this is where I'm at. This is where I need to get to. These are the, I suppose, the big broad milestones I've got to try and achieve. So a farmer can either allow for it in opportunity costs or, or actively, you know, use capital to move towards that point. Absolutely. And what I will say before we get into the detail is this is something that farmers are grappling with right now and it's new, you know, and there's a huge amount of investment being invested through the research development corporations for agriculture. 
um, which is a co-investment by government and farmers, as you know. Um, there's serious dollars there. There's serious dollars around the world. But part of what would make all of this a lot easier is if there was a clear national target for agriculture and other sectors so that we could all be working on a level playing field and understand our goals and our timeframes and be able to manage that decision-making and investment framework with confidence. Certainty is really important. Um, at the moment, there are a number of great sources for farmers to go to. So they're commodity um, representative bodies. Their research and development corporations are designed to support them through this and tackle the biggest challenges and also those um, nutty little stones in the shoe for their, se their sector and commodity as well. Um, identifying those is really important to do at a sectoral level. Um, banks and financial institutions are really good at this because they have a vested interest in the pro long-term profitability of, if you're listening to this, your farm today. Um, it's really important we're all working together. And, of course, climate for farm Farmers for Climate Action has a great toolkit on our website which can point you to some great people. Things are moving all the time, so we're trying to stay ahead of the curve um, and it's really important that we do so. Um, there's also some things that we're focused on addressing, such as large-scale generation in renewable in regions and how that's working and, more importantly, in places not quite working. Our farmers are really pro-renewables, but there's some real, real challenges that they're telling us about. Um, that we're working hard to address as well. So it's not about being ideological about it. It's about tackling it like farmers tackle every other big challenge they face with really open mind and business principles. And I think if you look at it from a business principles point of view, that, you know, I'm thinking here when you, when I was listening to you, it's about kicking, not kicking the can. So if you kick the can down a road too far with this is that, it's going to cost more. You, these things tend to cost more into the future. So, for example, you mentioned um, these influences within the within the ecosystem of the industry that might come down to bear. So, for example, a, a, a banks and superannuation funds now have, I think, through shareholders, and I'm not across this completely. You're probably better at this than me, but have essentially some some climate or some um, carbon expectations by the shareholders of these companies. Now, those will, one way or another, end up on the client. So you might not, um, let's say, be doing much in this space, but the bank says in order to get money, you have to meet these climate or these um, carbon uh, benchmarks because we need it for our business or whatever. So do you feel that it's from a farmer, even if you say, okay, this is new to me, I don't know anything about it, I'm worried about it, but I don't know where to start, is it? Is it better to start early and work your way into this rather than say, I'll, 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 um, I'll let Natalie and the gang tell me how to fix it all in 10 years' time? So, Yeah, it's, it's heartening to know we're not the only ones going through this, but it is something that we need to be – we're actually overdue to start thinking about. So if you haven't started thinking about it, the right time is now. Um, it is challenging because it can feel very overwhelming, so – Focusing, I think, on one part of your business first and then moving forward and broadening out, I think, is a great thing to do. Um, but, for instance, um, a lot of, for instance, financial institutions, uh, other businesses, they're all working to ESG or environmental social governance principles, and there's really strict um, metrics that are being applied to themselves there um, so, for instance, banks will think about the amount of money they invest and where that investment is going, that it has to deliver or be aligned to their ESG principles. So we want our farms to be able to align with that. And it makes sense that food producing um, businesses would align to that because actually they're absolutely needed and we look after our people and we look after our bit of earth as well. So it makes sense that actually we're best placed to be very aligned to that. It's just about understanding it and getting across this new way of measuring. Um, but it is helpful to know that um, we're not the only ones grappling with wholly new ways of conceptualising our business and our operations. Yeah, definitely. So 
you've you've done some work with um large the, you know the what I call the existing or the incumbent uh, representative organisations like NFF and and others. So there's a political advocacy side to um, farmers for climate action. So can you tell me about some of the wins you've been having in that area? Especially, I know you did something with NFF um, around climate goals. Um, does that extend beyond those organisations to state organisations or local members? So how do, how do you advocate in that area, and how do you how do you what, what are your goals in in that? I suppose also I don't call the political side of the industry or advocacy side of the industry. Sure, we our number one goal is economy wide climate policies um, that will unlock a prosperous and sustainable future for farmers and our communities. So we do that actually mostly directly with politicians. I can tell you that I'm only brand new in the job, but I've met, I've had short meetings with the Treasurer, the Minister for Agriculture, um, some independents, and also with NFF and members have been involved in many meetings there as well. The great thing for us about being a member of the National Farmers Federation is that around that table are state farming organisations, commodity-based representative bodies and others. Um, so it's a really good marketplace of agricultural policy ideas, so to speak, and it's a great place to look at and think about things like what does sustainability look like long-term and how can we build that in, strengthen that at the NFF table. Um, we don't always agree. I think that's normal and healthy. Um, we are always have an appetite for extra strong climate policies uh, but it's important to be listening as much as we're talking and we really hold hold ourselves to that. Um, it's important for us that we're bringing people along. We all rep- already represent a really significant group of farmers that are aligned to what we're doing, but we know that bringing the rest of the industry along with us isn't going to be done by telling them how it should be and why. It's actually about listening to, to understanding and being informed by um, what their concerns or qualms might be, or sometimes it's not even concerns or qualms. It's there's this other big issue on the table that they would like to deal with in its in and on its own right. So, for instance, right now the Murray Darling Basin is one of those. Even though for us it is caused by climate change, there's some p- clear and present issues that um, some farmers really only have the bandwidth to deal with, and we respect that. Yeah, and that's the thing. So there, there is it's almost like a Venn diagram, don't we? Yeah. You know, you've got essentially environment and as in local environment, like river systems, um, uh, chemical and fertilizer usage, um, you know, spray drift, all those sort of environmental concerns really end up overlapping, um, the climate action conversation. So sometimes I'd imagine it'd be fairly hard to separate those two. To um, both discussions and outcomes, would it? Oh, absolutely! And, and this is where you sort of learn that a lot of the great um, puns and cliches in our language are derived from or inspired by farming. So, for instance, the wood for the trees and things like that. Um, where, where for us, the wood for the trees is about well, we're dealing with you know one drought or one flood or the Murray Darling Basin as a single issue, but it's part of this really big. Um, huge issue and we've got to deal with both. Um, but we also recognise that there is something around farmers, around fatigue and disaster, and we understand that there's individuals and families and there's mental health challenges and there's also the effort and resilience that it takes to just navigate these challenges and people have been doing that for a long time. So we also feel that we're playing as a team and sometimes playing as a team is we go hard because we've got the energy and the resources to do this and to focus on that issue and we give them space to navigate that immediate challenge as well. And often the uh, traditionally over the many, many decades, the farming regions tend to have been Tend to be uh, represented by more, the more conservative side of politics, let's say. You know, and this is a quite a big generalization, but it's fairly solid, I think, in most areas. And those organizations have never traditionally been, I suppose, super proactive in the context of um, climate uh, policy. Do you find that that is changing? Or if I'm a farmer and I know that I have an incredibly conservative MP, um, 
and then and they're either being disruptive or just just not proactive or helpful in in that debate. Um, is this somewhere where your organisation can help, or is there something that you can help them? Okay, create influence for that local MP, or do you think that's just changing this this idea of a conservative anti well not anti but a, a ambivalent climate action local rural MP is is something that's changing? It's a great question. So I think the answer is both, um, but the truth is we're really overdue for action. So. Um, we do encourage farmers that are motivated and more and more farmers are motivated to have chats with their local MPs to reach out to us if they haven't already so that we can help support them to feel more confident or more equipped to have that conversation. That's one of the key things that we do and proud of it. Um, but some of the the things we do as well, you might have heard um, a few weeks ago or just about a month ago, Barnaby Joyce um, in the Nationals Party Room the nationals, of course, often representing um, the regional locations where farm, farmers are located, um, brought to the party room a motion to um, knock the zero emissions target from the nationals' party. And how many people do you reckon supported him to do that in the nationals' party room? I've got no idea. It sounds like something. Yeah, Okay. You've got to surprise me now. I'm going to surprise you because what we got was a hell of a lot of phone calls during that time, of a couple of days of those meetings, and the motion got put forward a few times, um, as I understand it, and all occasions received not one vote of support. So what we knew was that the MPs in that room wanted to be supported and to understand the implications. They are taking responsibility for making sure that they've got evidence-based information in front of them, but they're really open and listening to constituents. We, we really encourage and admire that. We think that this isn't an ideological issue. It's simply about how do we be an economic superpower in agriculture, not just today and in the past, but in the future as well. And is that because often this type of debate has always been it traditionally it's uh, it's been argued like zero sum game, and I was I will you've got to stop doing this so we can do this, and then people have obviously got their backs up because that's their living, you know. It's we've seen this in the um, obviously um, talking about Barnaby, you know, he represents coal areas as well. I think you know, so there's this I'm fighting for people's livings here, so they can either have a living or we can have a um, or we can have climate change, but you can't have both. But in reality, that's a little over dualistic and simplistic. Do you think the debate is moving beyond this zero-sum game with, with climate action? I really hope so. I think one thing I don't want to discount is change is hard. Absolutely, you need a huge amount of bandwidth to move towards and test a whole new operating system, even if it's incremental. Um, so I want to acknowledge that's real. Um and that's difficult and not everyone's ready to move at the same time. What I also want to say, though, is I think it's res responsibility of government to support and help provide information and extension to sectors to do that. So when governments are setting new legislation or policy, we want them to do the right thing for the right reason and to bring people along, but to do it understanding the truth of the picture. And everyone that we've spoken to that is moving towards climate smart agriculture, what we learn is that it's more profitable, you know, not an either or zero sum game. It's actually about do, doing the best thing and structuring your farm business to more profitability, um, great biodiversity, and also so you and your family can farm long term if that's your business unit. Um, and often you'll hear things where people make changes because there's quality of life implications that benefit them as well. Um, for us, we, we want to support the farmers themselves. And the absolute best outcomes for us have a triple P result. So profit, planet and people benefit. Yeah, it's a, there's a Venn diagram in itself on the website, isn't it? You, when you're talking about... Um, you know the the profitability, and I often found you know we talk about that lifestyle on the on the on the farm, and I even found back in the early days. So when I was still farming, um, back in the nineties, we were it was really that almost like the pinnacle of land care, especially around when we were. So we were doing a lot of um, 
we were a lot of uh, building a lot of grade banks across um, areas of paddocks, and we were planting trees um, at regular intervals in bandwidths up and down our our large paddocks. Now that was that was good for it's good for everything. Um, uh, like so, everything from beneficial bugs through to spray drifts through to protection for livestock to everything. But you were talking about the lifestyle. It also looked great, <laughs> and it was nice driving around your farm with just so many. Um, plantations of trees everywhere so you, you're quite right it, sometimes it is a little bit beyond um, just the black and white stuff as well it really is feel good stuff and I've been had the privilege of being on the board of Lancure Australia for a while and it's just incredible what can be done um, what I will say though just like when we think about the challenge of recruiting new people to agriculture because they simply don't have that bridge or an understanding fact that as a sector, one thing we are is very humble. We don't toot our own horn and often we don't even talk too much. Um, so often we're not talking up all the benefits. We've got that quiet satisfaction and you can sort of visualise all the people driving past that beautiful image you described just now and just having that quiet nod to themselves and thinking, yep, that was good. That's that's looking good. Community pride. We've created some really tangible, measurable benefits. Um, but often we're not um, evangelical, for want of a better word, around spreading the word and letting people know what we're doing and why. So often we think part of what we can do is actually help people call that out in a way that feels appropriate for them, such as a you know a farmer in focus piece or case study let government know so that they can we they can know this is a good thing to invest in again um, and and replicate elsewhere and to get people on conferences or things like that where we can share that information more broadly. Yeah, and I reckon if you go into any district, like I, I kept thinking, well, the whole time you've been talking, I've been thinking, okay, if I went and had an audit sometime, and let's say there was this magic climate audit that you had to do, like you always have to fill out a form. I don't know if you, if you've got give blood, you have to fill in this form every time before you question, every time you, you don't have blood. Anyway, so say it's like one of those for the climate. I reckon so many farmers would be like, are you doing this? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, you're doing this? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, have you done that? Oh, yeah, we're doing that already. And I think you were talking about the gap. We're talking, or a little bit while you were talking about the gap between where they are now and where let's say, zero net carbon is. And I actually think if farmers went through the um, the process of working out where they were already at, they'll be, I think both auditors and farmers would be surprised how far down the road most farm businesses already are. Oh, I'm nodding vigorously because one of the things that I love to ask when I've got a panel of farmers and they're doing great things is, you know, do you have any regrets or anything you wish you knew before you started out on this? And everyone always gives exactly the same answer. And that is, I wish I did a benchmarking of a, a carbon audit benchmark. Um, and because actually they realized that saved a huge amount of carbon already and, you know, they've got their profitability, they can measure that. Um, but what we haven't done is that first benchmarking of the carbon to really capture all the true reductions. And they sort of feel excited about what it would have been. Yeah, definitely. Look, you look at um, grain farming alone in Australia. So, um, you know, zero tillage really sort of peaked late 90s. You know, that's when it was just like became, it wasn't um, unusual. It became just normal to have a zero till system within your farm farm um, system. Now, you think since then, you know, the last uh, 20 plus years, 25 years, how much carbon has been retained and captured just through that simple productivity change within farm businesses, um, soil health carbon. So the soils of the 80s and the soils of the 2023 are all, would be radically different, I'd imagine, across Australia. Oh, absolutely. And this is the thing. We've been an early ad adopter of new technology and innovation. It's made incredible sense, again, on that triple P line that we talked about earlier, um, but it won't be captured in any reductions. And in fact, one of the things that I'm really aware of is that actually on paper, as part of the national emissions profile, it might look like agriculture is going backwards 
as the electrification of the energy sector and the transport sector moves forward, because they will reduce in the total share of our national pie of emissions. Um, and agriculture, although we're only 15% or less now, um, will look like it's a greater share, even though we will be reducing also. Um, but because we're not subject to as much incentive, incentives and subsidies, um, we will perhaps not look, um, it, it won't reflect the effort that we're taking and the investment we're making of our own money. Um, so part of the reason why we're really keen on national targets is that will strengthen our ability to ask for that instant, instant extension dollar or subsidies in the right places to support our adjustment. That makes a lot of sense. So you've got to read into the numbers carefully. The um, So I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm a farmer, I'm listening to this, and I go, okay, love what Natalie's saying here. You guys do a lot of education. You have a bunch of resources. So I'm listening to this, and I go, wow, this is the first time I've ever heard of climate uh, farmers for climate action, or I've I've seen them around, but I've never really uh, dug in. But I really want to get involved. How do how do they get started on their journey with the resources your organisation does, and 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 how do and how do they actually start taking action themselves? So how would they um, engage with your organisation, um, one way or another, to, to to make a start? Well, first of all, I would say you could not be more welcome. Head to our website, farmersforclimateaction.org.au, and click the Join Us button. Join us. Um, we ask all farmer members to make a contribution. It doesn't have to be financial. It's what you decide it should be. So you might give us a quote about why climate action suits you. You might make a tax-deductible donation. Anything over $2 is tax-deductible. Or you might participate by downloading some of our toolkits or go on the newsletter, a mailing list and things like that. There's definitely no rush about it. Please join because the more farmers that join and show that they're standing up for climate action, the stronger our ask is. So just by joining, you strengthen our ability to support you at the national level. We're really keen to do that and keep improving how we do that. But also you can feel free to email us and let us know what of our offering suits you best or if there's something else we should be exploring to support you. Um, it's a two-way conversation and it's something that we're really interested in. And unlike um, traditional farmer organisations, we really recognise that everyone's at a different stage of priority um, in their life. So the amount of time or money you give us doesn't necessarily reflect how important climate action is for you. You might request a free core flute to hang on your um, fence and to show your community that you're a farmer for climate action. We'd love to send one out to you um, and we'd also love for you to participate in the way that's right for you in the work that we do or to support your voice going to your local MP and beyond. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like if it's something as, okay, I want to show to my community that I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm a farmer for climate action and I can put something on my front gate or – I've never written to my local MP, but this is really important to me. You can help them with that as well. You bet. You bet. Okay. And it really Brilliant. does make a difference. So if I want to get something going in my local community, farmers have, you know, really strong local communities and I go, okay, this is something that really ticks a lot of boxes for me and I want to try and advocate for this. With my, can you – can they advocate for climate farmers for climate action within their community? Is there support in that way? Absolutely. So we've been invited to lots of communities. There's some really active places for FCA, but there's also communities where we're just starting and we're excited to do that. It might be that you're already um, part of a group and you want to invite us down to or up to come and speak and share some information. It might be that you invite us to jump on a virtual meeting and that suits your community better. Um, we're small, but we're incredibly active, so we're definitely up for um, doing these sorts of things. For example, I'll be um, in a cafe in Mudgee for three hours inviting any any farmer within a 50k radius that wants to to come and have a cuppa and a chat. Um, it's about how do we build those those movements from the ground up and understand what's important to those communities. 
So when you have those chats, and I'm sure you have a lot of really interesting chats when you do that, uh, whether it be at a community level or at uh, a one-on-one level in a cafe in Mudgee, but the what are the the biggest? So you sit down and you get someone sit down and go, look, Adley, thanks for taking my time, but you know I'm really worried about this, or they have this. What do you think are the things? I've got two questions for you. What are the biggest thing you find that farmers are concerned about? In this whole um, space, and what are the biggest myths you you come across in the context of climate action and farmers? I think it's early for me to really say that I'm identifying trends, but what I will say is that climate is a really big worry on people's minds, and that can be for a variety of reasons. It could be being really nervous about. If we are regulated, what does that look like and what's my ability to survive? Because I don't know that. And the, the worst thing about being feeling imminent but not there is you can't examine it and get a sense of it um, at the moment. The other piece is I notice that as soon as you talk about what's worrying with you, what's worrying you and you realize you're not alone, gosh, that halves the load. Because there's always people already working on it and suddenly you're part of a genuinely massive movement. We don't have to do any of it on our own. So please join the movement because the more there are of us, the, le- the more we share the load together. And there's always someone able to step up to, whether it's have a chat to a journalist, an MP, whether it's actually participating and getting some support for some on-farm um, adjustment, whether it's getting some information like we did last Thursday around on-farm electrification and what that looks like and what some of our questions and concerns, everyone walks away feeling really positive and really energised and less worried because we're finally doing something about it. And chats do matter and they do count. And I feel pages of notebooks um, just listening and taking things down and seeing where the trends are. Um, In terms of myths, I think the biggest myth that we've got is that this is going to go away. In fact, we're worse off if we don't get some certainty in the game. So, for instance, a lot of people might be watching the UK and see there's some moves towards going backwards on the legislated targets. Actually, the industry that that's supposed to benefit has come out and slammed it, the automotive industry, because they've actually invested a lot to meet these targets and they're satisfied and comfortable that they can do this and be profitable and actually changing things on them changes their ability to navigate their business and adjust with confidence. So getting some long-term goals and sticking to them and then investing in supporting farmers to adjust and change so we leave no one behind is a no-brainer from where we're sitting. So I've got one more question before I let you go, and I because I know you've got a flight to catch, Nelly. Um, so when you're not you're 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 a busy girl, busy lady. That sounds patronising. Sorry, busy lady. And um, that. Um, but what do you do when you're not advocating? Because I I can I look at your your LinkedIn profile or your CV, and you you're a, you're a very passionate and busy in in advocacy. So so what do you do when you're not doing that? So what what do you do in your downtime? Well, um, I do get upset a lot because I am a crazy workaholic. So I love sports. I've um, just put on my Collingwood scarf because I'm currently a premier and proud of it. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> very passionate about lots and lots of different sports. Um, I'm very privileged that I live close to the beach. So I'm always walking. I'm a workaholic, if you like. Um, but I also love just being near water, whether it's a river, whether it's um, the, the bay. I think water is so lucky, it's so beautiful, and we're so lucky in Australia. I literally go on bushwalks, and I have favourite trees, and um, you know, I will, I will almost hug them. That's for sure. Um, I love just contemplating and doing some strategic thinking while I'm walking. And I notice that my best strategic thinking comes when I'm noticing nature the most and the sounds of birds and rustle of the leaves and all the rest. So I just, I feel so privileged to live in this country 
and to experience it and soak it in. Um, I also really love people. So I'm really privileged in this job, um, but also in my personal life to have amazing people around me that you know what it's like. You collect people along the way and they become very dear friends, whether you've met them at work or play. And, and that's a really wonderful part of my life. And I think if I had more, twice as many days in the week, I know that I'd fill them with wonderful things. And honestly, there would be some, a lot of work in there because I'm really passionate about what we do. Um, but there'd be lots of great conversations, great people and time in nature as well, I reckon. I think um, the Japanese culture, I, I can't actually remember the word for it, but they call it forest bathing. And I love that idea. So um, they have water bathing and forest bathing. Yeah, and I can just think of the dappled light coming through the trees and and that's the ultimate, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to be stressed in the bush, isn't it? Thank you very much for joining us today, Natalie, and I'll let you go and catch your, your plane that you've got to get to now. But I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed that conversation and um, I thank you very much for taking the time out to um, talk to us today. Thanks so much for having me, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.